0: you this morning we have been looking at a series that we've just called teach us to pray and so if you're a person who's spiritual uh, you probably have some experience praying or you have some questions about prayer and if you have any experience at all I think I suspect you'll find that it's more difficult than uh, than it sounds like what is prayer prayer is simply just having a conversation and directing that conversation to God, it's it's saying like these are the things that are on my mind, and um, and so here you go, I'm telling them to you, and. There's something in us that really struggles with it, that when we turn our attention to God, our mind tends to begin to want to try to wander, and there's a number of reasons for that. But we just have been asking the question and, and coming to the feet of Jesus and asking the question, Jesus, will you teach us to pray? And so we've been looking at um, a, a place where Jesus does just that. He, he tells us, here's how you should be praying. And it's a, it's a prayer that'll be familiar to most of us culturally. We hear it oftentimes, um, well, I think we've probably heard it mostly in sports movies um, where they'll, they'll sing or they'll state the Lord's Prayer together in a huddle maybe before, um, before the big game and, uh, and ask for God's blessing and to keep people safe and all of those kinds of things. Um, your grandma probably has a cross stitched up on her wall somewhere um, it's something that we're really familiar with culturally, but, but think about this. The greatest spiritual teacher that has ever walked the face of the earth gave instructions on how to pray and you could literally write the answer on your hand. You could fit the Lord's prayer, the disciples' prayer, the Our Father. You could fit it on the palm of your hand. like If you wanted to cheat on the test, it's super possible for you to do. How is it that the world's greatest spiritual teacher can, can deduce something that we find to be complicated and difficult to grasp, how could he reduce that down to something that could literally fit on the palm of your hand? Is it a spell? <laughs> is it some kind of magic thing that like, if we say these right words, God's going to do exactly what we want? Is it some kind of like a motto or a philosophy to live by? Is it, is it some kind of a mantra that we just repeat over and over, and as we repeat it, something magical happens. We go into this state of euphoria. Like, what? Why is it so short? I think it's because he packed a lot in there. Um, he he uses. Have you ever like had somebody and you come to them with like this really big complicated question, and they give you a really brief answer, and you're like but that doesn't address everything that I need. Like, what about this? What about that? What about that? And and I don't know if you've ever had this experience where they just keep pointing you back to the same simple thing, and you're like, all right, there's something they're saying I haven't understood yet. And I think that is why Jesus' answers teach us to pray so concisely. So we spent the whole of our time together last week looking at one verse, um, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And so if you missed that week, or if you missed that conversation, I'd encourage you to go back and check it out on our website or on our podcast, however you like to, to catch up on those kind of things. Um, actually, it's not there yet, now to I think about it, I was out of town this week, so it will be there this week, I promise. Um, and last week... Uh, we looked the or we saw that Jesus, or I'm in the wrong spot of my notes. God's honor is the focus and power of our prayers. And this week, we're going to take the next two verses. We're getting a little bit crazy. We're going to look at two verses today. Um, but we're actually going to end up looking at, at a bigger chunk. So I'd encourage you, if you would, to please open your Bibles um, to Matthew chapter 6. And as you navigate there, uh, if you're using these blue Bibles that are on the chairs in front of you, it's going to be on page 1012. 1012. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at verses 10 and 11. But it's going to be helpful for you to have a Bible open in front of you because we're actually going to look at, um, at, at passages that are really close to here. So you're, you're, we're going to be in, in chapter 5, 6, and 7 uh, just as an overview summary. So it's going to be helpful for you to have the text in front of you so that it doesn't sound like I'm just making a bunch of stuff up. As we begin, and as I see that you're kind of getting to where we're going to be, I just invite you to pray together with me. And I guess as a warm-up, let's pray together the disciples' prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever amen uh, so Matthew chapter 6 verses 10 and eleven um, we we've just addressed them to God. So now, uh, if you were praying from memory, I'm just going to show it to you on the page. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. We're going to look at these ideas together. And there's three ideas in these two verses that I think are going to be related, but any one of these ideas could be a sermon. So I'm, I'm working really hard to show some restraint, Um, but I want you to see how these ideas connect together and how they connect together to the bigger picture. Your kingdom come, and there's something that's happening grammatically here. I just want to point out at at the front end. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That modifier at the end, on earth as it is in heaven, I think is actually modifying both of those phrases. So when we pray, your kingdom come, implicitly, grammatically, what we're saying, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Um, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but that is redundant, so we don't say it that way. But grammatically, that's the idea that we're communicating. So your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. What are we talking about? What is the kingdom? What is Jesus' kingdom? Or the Father's kingdom? What is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of heaven? And you will probably not be surprised to find out that people have written very large volumes about what is the kingdom of God. How are we to understand this phrase? How are we supposed to interact with what the kingdom actually is? And there are a number of um, rabbit trails that I'm going to avoid. I'm just saying I'm going to try to Um, explain it to you as as concisely as I can by letting Jesus explain it, if that's okay. What is the kingdom of God? I think what he's trying to communicate in this sermon, uh, as, as this section of teaching is actually contained in a broader sermon, he's trying to communicate overall what is the kingdom of God, what does it look like in this whole sermon. So this teaching that we're looking at in Matthew chapter six falls in the middle of, in fact, the very heart of a sermon that we have recorded from Jesus that we typically call the Sermon on the Mount. Um, they named sermons by where Jesus gave them. So he went up on a mountain. They say, oh, that's the mountain sermon. Uh, he went out to a plain; they're like, that's the plain sermon. He did it from a house. That's the house sermon. See, I, I have to come up with titles for my sermons because I give them all in the same place. Um, Jesus would travel around through different places, so he, he had easier time naming his sermons. But this sermon's called "The Sermon on the Mount," and it, it is the largest uh, single sermon that we have recorded from, uh, from his lips. And it's very instructive, but it starts in chapter five, and it ends in chapter seven in Matthew. And so what I'd like for us to do is, um, without me trying to preach over, uh, preach over Jesus. I just want to show you by looking at the, the headings that are there in the text, like what is it that is in this sermon? Because I think the ideas that he's communicating is, is painting a picture of the kingdom of God. All right? So I'm, I'm trying not to give you like a textbook definition. I want, I want for Jesus to give you the paint the picture for you. What is the kingdom? He starts this sermon by saying, If you want to be happy, happy people look like this. But then, as he says, happy people look like this, he gives us things that we don't expect. And we call that passage, we call it the Beatitudes. And there's Latin and Greek, and it's just kind of a goofy word. But it's, but Beatitude is like the blessings. It is the happy one. Happy are the ones who are poor in spirit. Happy are the ones who mourn. Happy are the meek and the quiet. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Happy are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. Like Those are not like the top ten things of things that I think are going to make me happy which lets us know that the kingdom of God is something that is upside down. It is backwards. It is counterintuitive to how I want to approach my life, which I hope puts salt in your oats. You've heard the phrase, you can't lead a a horse to water. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. This is true. But you can put salt in their oats. So I'm hoping that just by pointing out that if I want to live a happy and a fulfilled life, the way to that is not automatically clear to me. I need revelation from somebody else, somebody, a heavenly person, a spiritual person to explain to me how to do that. And the answers are here. So salt and the oats, go back, read, drink, um, and, and be blessed. The, the Beatitudes uh, really reflect an attitude of somebody who is humble, somebody who approaches life from a humble posture, somebody who doesn't come into life, doesn't barge into the room saying, I deserve everything that you have to give me, but somebody who says, uh, what I deserve I haven't gotten. I have received grace, and so I'm going, a, I'm going to be a humble person. I'm going to consider myself as just a servant of God. I'm going to live my life in that way. The Beatitudes point to humility. Um, and, and he says, people that have that humility are salt and light. They, as they are scattered across the earth, they give flavor to the earth. As they are gathered together, they are a light pointing straight to, uh, to God's goodness and God's law. That humility is going to stand out in the world that we, uh, that we inhabit. And here's something like, as we look at that, there are people who will hone in on those principles and be like, so love is the guiding principle and we can't ever tell anybody that they're wrong and we gotta, we gotta accept everything that everybody says. And I agree that yes, we love is the defining principle, but we must understand that love is based upon God's character. And so there's a section here in the sermon where Jesus says, look, I didn't come to get rid of the law, I came to fulfill it. I came to show you how it is actually done. And in my fulfilling it, you can live in it freely the kingdom of God is based upon God's law I think it's good to remember that as we pursue um, love and humility he says that citizens of the kingdom of God have a pure heart and he points out uh, he, he highlights this by pointing out two ways that we carry impurity with us the first is anger towards other people and the second is lust towards other people that purity in heart is interacting with people in appropriate manners, and, and anger and hostility towards other people is actually going to poison the wellspring of your soul. It's going to poison your heart. And lust, likewise, um, looking at people lustfully and desiring um Desiring to treat them as objects to fulfill your um, desi- uh, your desires, your lustful desires, is actually also toxic to your soul. And it will poison the wellspring of your soul. It will poison your heart. Uh, an indicator of that um, is also divorce. He addresses that. He says we need to be honest people. People need to be able to take us at our word. Um. We're going to love our enemies, people that hate us. We're going to show love and compassion towards. We're going to be generous towards other people, not so that people think of us as good people and generous people, but simply because that's how God has treated us. God has given us all these rich blessings, and we acknowledge that everything we have comes from God, so we use those gifts that come from God. We hold them with open hands, not so that we get a great reputation, because that's why God gave them to us. We want to honor him with our lives. We are masters over our finances in the sense that our finances are not the driving force of motivation of our lives. It's a tool that God's given us. We're not mastered by money, but we have a mastery over it and we use it for what it's appropriate for. Um, There are so many places we could camp out and I'm going to try to keep moving. We're unanxious people. We're trusting that God is working all things out in the the world. We're self-reflective. When we see sin in other people, we identify also that that same sin has its roots in our heart. We look to deal with the sin in our heart before we look to call it out in other people. We're self-reflective. Then there's a passage here at the end that is probably the scariest passage in all of scripture. And it's in 721, I'm gonna read it because I think it's important conclusion to his sermon. When we consider the kingdom, access to the kingdom is not based upon a password. There's a school of thought that um, I grew up in that I think sees the kingdom of God and sees heaven and sees the blessed life as a matter of having the right passwords, we would they wouldn't ever state it quite that articulately but I hear it I hear it when I talk to my neighbors do you um hey man i'm I've been going to church like' you know, I'm, I'm really like Jesus is really doing stuff in my heart and and um and yeah like where are you at spiritually oh I'm saved Jesus is Lord I'm saved okay so you know enough church words to know that there's a, a, there, there's a password. There's, uh, let me give you some kind of an indicator. Like, I'm not asking you whether you're saved. I'm asking you whether you're walking with Jesus, whether he's got his hands in your life, whether he's rearranging the furniture of your soul. Like, are you submitted? Are you walking with him? What's he doing in your life? I'm saved. I prayed the prayer. I walked the walk. I, I walked down the aisle. You know, it was a really impactful moment for me. I, just, I definitely had a spiritual encounter. I'm saved. Entrance into the kingdom isn't about knowing that Jesus is Lord of all creation. uh, Entrance into the kingdom is not about being able to articulate that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Having the knowledge of the password is not sufficient to get through the gate. It's the scariest verse in the Bible. You can study the scriptures. You can memorize the scriptures. You can know it backwards and forwards. You can have every uh, category of theological knowledge perfect and still not get in. It's not about what you know. It's about what he is doing in you. And so I'd encourage you, like, if, if if I ask you, are you citizens of the kingdom? Are you a citizen of the kingdom? Are you, are, are you, are you, the answer is not, yeah, I'm saved. I prayed a prayer. I walked, It's it's not what, it's not an event that happened, although it is an event that happens. It's, yeah, like, I got really, really angry at my family, and I was going off, and like, the conviction of the Spirit came on me and I had to go and I had to humble myself and I had to apologize to my kids. And man, that's hard. But the Spirit led me to it. And then I had to make it right. Like the things I said to them was not true. And so it, it was the damage I did took, took time for me to work and I had to continue not just to humble myself once to make the apology, but to continue to be humble as I acknowledged that I, I hurt people Jesus is working in my heart. He closes the sermon with, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Listen to me and do what I say. Don't memorize it just for the sake of having the knowledge, but do it. We put Jesus first. So the kingdom of God is a collection of people being transformed by the king to live out the principles of the kingdom in a foreign land. The kingdom is at hand, the kingdom is near to the degree that we, church, have submitted ourselves to the king. And are being transformed by Him. Are we putting Jesus first? Yeah, I know what He says about lust, but like I was on that website, and like my eyes just got hooked, and I just clicked a couple more links, and like I got down that road, and it didn't really hurt anybody. Like it's like it was just me, and like you know whatever. Well, I, I, know what, I know what Jesus says about anger, but, like, man, they really get under my skin, and they did that on purpose because they know that that frustrates me, and, like, man, if I, if I could reach them, i just bounce their face off of the table. Like, I just... Are we putting Jesus first? Here's the big idea and I phrased it this way because I didn't want to use church words, okay? So this is going to be weird, and I want it to be weird on purpose because I want you to hear it. Jesus is making us ambassadors of his extraterrestrial kingdom. It's not of this world. It's not like anything you have seen on the planet. Tell me what power in the culture has people... Admit that they are wrong and humbly offer an apology and then work to make things better to build reconciliation between people, to give generously of the gifts that God has given them. Like, what? Who does that? No, we live in a culture that says get everything that you can and hold on to it for as long as you can. Jesus is making us ambassadors of his extraterrestrial kingdom. This is true. I'm going to pause. I've made it weird on purpose, but I also need to add a caveat. I am not saying that God is an alien. You will find that that is understood in, by some people in our neighborhoods that God is actually an alien. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the kingdom is not of this world. And Jesus is making us ambassadors of that kingdom. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Then the next phrase. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will. God's will. What is somebody's will? This is actually a hard word to use, without, or it's a hard word to define without using the word in it. Uh, I'll give it a shot. Oh, somebody's will is their Desire what they want to happen, the preferred process or outcome for something. And I'm not even sure that that actually conveys the idea. uh, Somebody's will is their preference for reality, what they would prefer to be true, what they would prefer to be real. God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, We've acknowledged already in this series that things don't work the way that they should work. That, that God is our heavenly Father, and in order to understand our heavenly Father from, earth, from our earthly vantage point, we need our heavenly Father to disclose things about him. That's why we trust the Bible. We trust God's word. But this, this got me into um, some deep thinking. When we think about God's will, what is God's preference for reality? So before I give you the hard questions, I'm going to give you the biblical answers because um, these are, I think, the most helpful. And if you've never heard these before, then it, it will change your life. There are two verses that I'm aware of. I'm sure that there are more, but there are two verses that I'm aware of that very clearly articulate what God's will for the world is. Okay? The first one is in a letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. And the verse says that God's will is that people will trust him to save them. God's will is that every person on the planet would be saved, come to salvation. God's will is that people will trust him to save them. That's what he wants to happen. That is his preference for reality. God's heart is that his children would come back into his family. The second one is in a letter to uh, the church in Thessalonica. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, and there it says that God's will, God wants for us to be sanctified, which is kind of a Bible word. Um, sanctification is the process by which we become like him. There's a legal process of adoption, um, that occurs where the, the courts acknowledge this kid who wasn't in the family now belongs to that family. That's a, there's a legal process of adoption. Then there's the cultural process of adoption where that kid who is living in a home that may not have been good for them, then the circumstances that they got used to as normal are now gone and they're being placed into a new family that operates differently, that has different values and who might be a better situation, but it feels bad because it's different from what they used to know. If we are in a system of sin, and that's how we learn how to function, and we suddenly get put into a system and a family of righteousness, it's going to feel wrong to us at first. But the process of adoption, the cultural process of adoption, is us becoming like God. That's sanctification. So God's will is that people be saved, that they be sanctified that they trust him to save them from their sin, and that they then go through the process of learning the new dynamics of the family, of becoming citizens of his kingdom and living out the way he wants to do. So that's God's will for the world. Why then do we have to pray, your will be done? If God is able to accomplish his will on the world, why doesn't he do it? Is everything that happens in the world God's will? Does that make God culpable for injustice? Does that mean we can blame Gahan for the evil that we see in the world? God's will is his preference for reality. There's something in what he permits that will bring about his preference for the ultimate reality. And that's an unsatisfactory answer when you're going through something really hard. That doesn't make it hurt any less when people hurt you. That doesn't make it easier to carry the scars of what happened to you when you were a kid. but we're in the process of becoming ambassadors for this extraterrestrial kingdom. And the only thing that I have as far as neatly packaged verses this week comes out of Romans chapter two. God is patient towards evil in order to give those who are under its sway the opportunity to trust him. In Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, it says, don't you know that God's patience towards your evilness, his kindness, is meant to bring you to repentance? And we could spend a week talking through issues and talking about experiences. And, and I can't do, it's, it's more than I could do to wrestle with these questions um, in this sermon. But this prayer brings us face to face with the evil that's in the world and asking, what does God want to do with all of this? Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We know it's not working out on earth how you want for it to be, so would you please start, would you please do something about this? So how do we wrap our heads around this? There's tension here that I can't resolve. How do we regularly become aligned with what God is doing? How do we regularly get on the same page in trusting that whatever's happening in my life is happening so that God can bring me closer to him in some way? At at the beginning of this series, Ryan pointed out to us that Jesus aligns us with God through prayer. There's something in the act of asking God to send his kingdom and to have his will done in the earth that helps us to come face-to-face with the evil and come face-to-face with whether or not we're going to trust God to deal with it. To bring the two together and to walk boldly into our weak. Because Jesus is making us ambassadors of his extraterrestrial kingdom. There's one more clause before we go that I'd just like to point out a couple of things. Uh, Part of the prayer there in verse 11 says, give us this day our daily bread. And um, (laughs) we just talked about um, in in our image series, actually, the verses that um, that this is pointing to. Many, many, many years ago, thousands of years ago, God decided he was going to do something special with people that took a group of people, a nation of people, out of slavery and took them into a desert where there was no food, there was no water. And so these people on this camping trip were like, we're going to die. We don't have enough to eat. And so God miraculously provided for them bread that fell down from heaven every day and it was just enough that they needed for that day. If they gathered more to save for tomorrow, it wouldn't keep. Just what they needed for the day. We talked about that in our image series, in in, in number four of our image series, and the title of that sermon was, Does God Care for Me? So I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that, because I went into a little bit more detail there. Give us this day our daily bread. God provides for us what we need. And notice it's just one statement. Hey, get what I need, please. This doesn't work with people. And you know this. If you're the person in the house that does the grocery shopping, you cannot say to the other person in the house who does not regularly do the grocery shopping, hey, get what I need. You're setting yourself up for failure. You gotta communicate, I need a list I need not only a list of what it is that you need, I need to know the brand name that you prefer. I need to know where it is on the aisle, where it is on the shelf. Like, I need a map. If you want me to be able to do this thing that you do regularly, I need instructions. Give me a picture text. Let me know exactly what it was. Let me know exactly how many you want. Because if you say you need two ounces of tomatoes in a can, and I get up there, and all the cans on the shelf say that they have 2.4 ounces of tomatoes, like it's gonna, I'm going to have anxiety. Give us this day our daily bread. God, give us this day our daily bread. Would you give me what I need materially? Food, clothing a place to to keep dry. Best case scenario, some air conditioning. Please, Lord Jesus. Materially, spiritually, God, would you give me the grace that I need for the day? Would Would you show me who it is that I need to be forgiving? Would you help me to understand why what they said has stuck in my heart so badly? Formatively, would you... Would you give me what I need to become who you are making me to be? Jesus is making us ambassadors of His extra, extraterrestrial kingdom, and you might be thinking, like, okay, that's that's not exactly in the same vein. Of what we're talking about, we're talking about your kingdom come, your will be done. Like these are big, big, broad things. And when I say, "Give me my daily bread," like that seems really personal. And like these two things, how do they go together? Understand that God's kingdom on the world and God's will being worked out in the world is your daily bread. The things that He wants to do on a global scale are going to be what's best for you personally. It's going to be best for your family. Jesus' kingdom is what's best for. The kingdoms of our heart, all the different things that we're trying to keep in order, those kingdoms need to be submitted to his kingdom. Can we trust God enough to provide for us without giving him a shopping list? I'm super good at giving God a shopping list. God I need to sell my car I don't really want to put any work into it I don't want to clean the thing but I just want to be sold and I want the price that I want for it I want to see a miracle come on Jesus, hallelujah it's not that wanting things or having conversations with God about what's actually going on in your life are bad I, I think he'd encourage us to do that But do we do them as a shopping list? Like, I need you to get this, 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 this. Thanks so much. I'll see you when you get back. Do we trust God enough to provide for us without giving him a shopping list? Because if Jesus is making us ambassadors of his extraterrestrial kingdom, that means as we walk through this world, as we navigate this foreign nation that we find ourselves in, we're going to stay connected to the king who's giving us everything that we need in order for us to share it with our neighbors, that his will might be done not only in our hearts but in theirs, and that his kingdom will be established Perfectly and ultimately on the earth when he arrives. Would you pray with me? God, we are under your microscope. There's stuff in these two verses that cuts us deep. That shows clearly some idols that we're holding on to some ways that we are putting other things before you in our identity and our affection, our loyalty and our, our provision, God. We want to put you first. You have made a way <laughs> and it's simple and it's easy and it's putting our faith in you but God is more than having the right password Would you make us into who you want for us to be? Would you shape our neighborhoods by shaping us first? Would you help us to understand how the principles of your law and what you are establishing in your kingdom can be applied to our hearts? and then can be applied on our streets. Would you give us the boldness to walk that out in ways that are submitted to you, loving our enemies, praying for those who persecute us, being blessed and happy because we are persecuted, making peace, navigating the world through the humility that acknowledges I deserve death and separation from you and yet you are giving me life and hope and unconditional love. Lord Jesus you are good. Help us with this. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.